Turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15 this morning. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. This is our custom. God's Word declares, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. Indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? Oh, God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in, all, in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Well, this morning we want to pick up Obviously, where we left off last week, that's how we do it. Um, but more so than normal, maybe. Um, this is going to be really an extension of last week's message as we consider um, a passage of Scripture that is perhaps one of the most sobering in the section here that we are called upon by Paul and thus by the Lord in our scriptures to consider who we are putting up with. What are we bearing up with? What are we tolerating would be a word that we use a little more often here of late. What are you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, what have I as a pastor willing to allow to be accepted within our church, particularly with regard to three things that Paul's going to stipulate here in verse 4, and that is with who Jesus is, and also with what spirit we minister in, and then what the gospel entails. And we um, are pretty sure that we've got this taken care of, and I'm not always so sure. And we're going to look a little bit more specifically at these three. We introduced this last week by talking about what do we put up with. 
This morning I'm going to get a little more finicky. So think of last week as kind of the overview that we do have responsibility to be discerning about what we listen to, about what we call truth, and about how we preach the gospel and how we handle the scriptures. For not everybody is doing it equally. And this is nothing new. Paul was dealing with this 2,000 years ago. Um, So it's not anything that we've invented here. Uh, It's not something just characteristic of our day. Uh, Every book but one of the New Testament warns us about false teachers. And we tend, though, to think that that's somewhere else. And we tend to limit that to the cults. Well, that's them that it's talking about. Um, but I think you will find, uh, in your, if you give into some careful study of Scripture, uh, that that is uh, one aspect, but it's only one side of this multifaceted attack on Christianity that we are called to defend ourselves against by not tolerating it within our body, within our assembly. So we're going to take some time to get finicky about Jesus, the Spirit, and the Gospel this morning. Let's go, Lord, prayer before we do so. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Again, for the opportunity to look into your Word. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. But Lord, we know that uh, there is much opposition, and while we think of assaults from without upon our practice. Lord, we know that much more dangerous is assaults from within upon our doctrine. Lord, we pray you might guard this time. Both what is said and what is not said. What is heard and what is not heard. That it might be directed by your Spirit. That it might be according to your word of truth. Lord, that you might grant us discernment, wisdom that is not indicative of this age among men. You might also give us the moral fortitude, the courage to take a stand. Recognizing that your people have largely always been the minority, even among those called your people. Lord, our prayer is that you might work in our spirits, our hearts, and our minds this hour to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to acknowledge something right off at the beginning. I'm not supposed to do this. I was taught not to do this in seminary, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, there's a certain amount of tension in what I'm going to share this morning in my own mind and in my own heart. Uh, and that tension, I, I, uh, I'm going to freely admit throughout it, and I'm going to give some reference points to it. Um, but I don't want you to think that that tension equals indecision, nor does that tension indicate, uh, uh, I haven't decided. That's not the case. Um, there is no indecision in what I'm teaching there is uh, this morning, because it comes from God's Word, I have no choice but to acknowledge it and to draw it forward into um, the message today. Uh, nor is there 
uh, in my mind, a doubt over what uh, the truth is. Uh, the struggle, the tension, is the extent of its application. That this morning I am going to press us to ask the question about who our Jesus is, what spirit we minister in, and what the gospel messages we're preaching. But Paul tells us to go even beyond that to begin to evaluate others and their ministry. And when I do that, it gets a little more concerning. Um, First of all, um, we don't always know the full extent of what they're teaching. And so our exposure is limited um, to whatever they are portraying themselves as, often in literature or in uh, the media. We have limited personal contact with some of those individuals. So if you come to me and say, do you think so-and-so is a Christian or do you think so-and-so is a false teacher, you're probably not going to get a quick yes or no answer out of me. Because there's a tension there that it's not ultimately my responsibility to decide who's going in and out of heaven. Um, And thank God that he does not put me at that job. And I don't think he put Peter there either, okay? Just to let you know. At the gates, that's not who's there either. Um, But yet we have a responsibility to identify error when we encounter it, no matter how godly the appearance of the one instructing us. And Paul here is calling us to this, and I want to jump ahead to the last two verses that we read earlier this morning. In chapter 11, verses 13 and 14 and 15, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Paul identifies them as false and deceitful, but they have configured themselves in such a way that from the perspective of the untrained, they look like apostles of Christ. They appear to be. They sound like it. And everything I hear from them sounds wonderful. And Paul says, well, no wonder they want to transform themselves like that. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And here we have a very powerful doctrine that is not well taught in our churches. We come to evaluate ourselves and our interaction with the world, and we are convinced in our minds that there is this huge gray area of things I can choose to participate in or not participate in, that this is my area of liberty. And pastor, you can't really stomp around very hard in that area because I can find excuses or rationales for participating in these things because they're gray. And I'll contend that what makes them gray is that you're going to have light mixed with darkness. And again, like we talked about last week, how much poison do you want in your pot? How much bleach do you want in your food? We have some, we tolerate it. And so if I had a carton of rat poison here and a 
jug of water. I was going to bring that, but I thought it would be too distracting for you. Uh, and a jug of pure water here. My question is, how much rat poison do you want in your water? It's all gray, right? After all, you're not eating pure rat poison, so it's okay, right? <laughs> if I put a little bit in your water. So this morning is going to seem a little out of balance because my objective is to make sure we know the difference between the poison and the purity that God calls us to. And that means that we have to point sometimes that individuals and organizations and systems of teaching that look good. In fact, they look like light. And whenever I hear people talk about their death experience, near-death experiences, and they always talk about, I heard this voice step into the light, come to the light. I always come to this passage of Scripture. That Satan never comes and says, come on over into the flames. Come on into the darkness cloud. Of... No, he doesn't do that. He portrays himself as an angel of light. He portrays himself as something good, positive, beneficial even. And if he's doing that, Paul says in verse 15, therefore is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. That they are producing a false sense of righteousness that is not built upon the work of Jesus Christ, but it's built upon something else. Whether it's their own efforts or ideals or if it's other systems of teaching, but fundamentally it is denying their absolute fundamental need for Jesus Christ, the one true and living God who became fully man. When we encounter those individuals, that body of teaching, I want you to notice what Paul says about them. He doesn't say, well, you can just kind of glean from them. Because there's some truth mixed in there. And I just want to listen to them enough. And I, I know that there's some poison in there. But I just want to glean out of that. And, and we all believe we have the capacity to do this really well. We are way too self-confident in this area. I can just glean. And I can listen to this teacher. And I know he's out here a little bit, Pastor. And, and that you would never have him in your pulpit. But I can listen to him. And I can glean some things out of it. And gleaning is an old word of of harvesting around the edges. Which you're really acknowledging something that the main crop is poison. Paul seems to have a very different opinion. And that is that these are ministers of Satan. Wow. Yeah, Paul's willing to say that. Ministers of Satan over there. In your church, guys you like, <clears throat> who, from appearance, seem to be ministers of righteousness. They seem, in appearance, to be pointing you to righteousness, but it's all off base because they have a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Well, how subtle is Satan? <laughs> well, Paul's already led us to Eve, right? How subtle is Satan? We've studied the, the fall enough here in this church that most of you should be significantly aware of how Satan deceived Eve. 
He didn't just walk up and say, hey, doll, let's uh, just throw this God out the window and you can follow me and we will have a great uh, time. And no, he didn't do any of that. He came in, quoted God, almost perfectly. I mean, why do we have to be word perfect, right? Almost perfectly. Did he really say? He just put in a little doubt, a little question mark. Did God really say that? He says, that's not really going to happen. And it was true that Eve took and ate the fruit. She didn't drop down dead, right? Did Eve drop down dead when she ate the fruit? No. But is that what God meant by death? You will surely die, which means that the end of your life, there will be an end to your life. We'll put it like that. You will surely die. Once you eat this fruit. You see, Satan comes in and you and I associate the serpent with a foul creature that crawls around that we'd like to stomp on and run away from and avoid. Um, But the serpent wasn't a creature like that until after the curse. That it was apparently a very appealing creature. That Satan comes and he picked a, a creature that was very appealing, came and had this conversation with Eve, and again, uh, talked about the wonderfulness of the fruit and what, that there's going to be, you know what, you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God. Let me translate that for you. You're going to be godly. How many of you want to be Godly. Sounds good. Come on. How many of you want to be godly? If I said we want to be godly, you'd say, yes, we all want to be godly. If you don't, we're in trouble right now. We're going to back up and forget the sermon. i got a different one for you. Okay? We want to be godly. I want to be like God. Doesn't that sound like a great offer? Satan is coming to him as a minister of righteousness, saying, don't you want to be like God? Yeah. You see how subtle it is? And just a little discontent that maybe God might be withholding a little something from you that would enhance your walk with Him. I mean, after all, He visits you every evening, and wouldn't it be nice to be able to walk with Him um, having a little bit better handle on God than you do now? I mean, he knows something you don't. You're interested in good and evil. So if you had this extra information, don't you think it would help you in your relationship with God? Now you can be more of peers. Sounds good. Yeah. And after all that fruit, it looks tasty. Just add one more thing. So when we get into identifying who Jesus is, and you're going to come off tonight convinced that I have an extraordinarily narrow view of who Jesus is, an extraordinary narrow view of who the Spirit is, an extraordinarily narrow view of the Gospel, and you will be leaving here with exactly the right attitude. Because until we get narrowed, in our understanding, down to we have distilled out the poison so all we have 
is the truth. Now, we can have a confidence before God and before men. And now we are able to distinguish between purity and the poison that Satan wants to instill, infect, into our faith. And this has been going on for a long, 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 long time. And so some of these things are going to seem extraordinarily radical to you. If I can't get to them all this week, we're going to finish it up next week. But uh, we're going to address them. The narrowness of truth. That it is absolute, that there is little gray, room for gray area. And that anything outside of that pure doctrine of Scripture, God calls error. Plain and simple. And error, we know where it comes from. Ministers of Satan. Not just good guys that had good intentions and just got a little misguided. And so I'm going to, no, ministers of Satan. Wow. Obviously, for a pastor coming to pastors like this, now you understand the weight that comes with it. And the weight is this, is that I want to be careful myself. That I am giving you the purity of God's Word. Unadulterated. By the working of Satan for the last thousands of years to try to poison God's truth. So I want to start with the word at the end of verse, towards the end of verse 3 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. And that is, Paul wanted our minds not to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And we see the word simplicity and say, Pastor, first thing that, that we need to recognize is that it's simple. The gospel is a simple thing. How is it? How can it be perverted that far? All people have to do is trust in Jesus and they're saved. And we use this idea of simplicity to think that somehow it is not complicated. We think it's the opposite of just, you know, that it's involved and, and, and drawn out. The idea here of simplicity is singularity. That is, um, there is a oneness. There is only one. And instead of looking at this and saying the gospel is a simple thing, that is, that it is easy or um, anything like that, rather we need to put in there the concept of what this word involves, that is, it's oneness. And those in the scientific community know how we use the word a simple. Uh, that simplicity involves a oneness, uh, that, it, that it can't be broken down any further, that it is a unit. And thus, Christ comes with this oneness. And we don't want to have this division. And when people come to me and say, Pastor, why are there all these different groups that all claim to be Christian? Well, they've been around for a while. And basically, they have brought complexity to the simplicity of Christ. The oneness of Christ, they have divided. And Paul calls us that in our minds, first thing that we need to reconfirm and assure and never let be corrupted is that there's a oneness in Christ. That you cannot have 
four different people with four different Gospels and all say they're all okay. You can't have four different descriptions of Jesus and say, well, as long as we're all trying to get to God, there is no such animal in God's plan. There is a oneness, a simplicity. There is one Jesus defined one way in God's Word. When we begin tinkering with them, and because of this, it's all about, you know, we just got to believe in Jesus, and it doesn't matter how you define Him, or I define Him, or they define Him, as long as we all believe in Jesus. Let me share with you something. Every Muslim believes in Jesus. How many of you are aware of that? Every Muslim believes in Jesus. They don't believe he's the Son of God. They don't believe he died for their sins. They don't believe any of that, but they do believe in Jesus. He was a great prophet. Not the greatest. That would be Muhammad. They believe in him. So are you content that all your Muslim people around you are going to heaven? Every Mormon believes in Jesus. A person who was a man who became a god, and you can become a god like he became a god. He just is our example. Every Mormon believes in Jesus. Are you content that they're all in heaven? And the question is, is it yours or my heaven? Because they have a whole different idea of heaven too. So when we go through and we begin to investigate this, we discover that there is a one singleness, a purity that Paul wants to be affirmed in our minds that there is only one Jesus that God sent. And this means that we have a very exclusive gospel. That is, that it does not accept all this other stuff as valid options. It also means that we need to be extraordinarily great students of this Word to really discover who Jesus really is so that we can quickly identify, easily identify counterfeits who are coming as ministers of righteousness, who are coming as angels of light, who are coming as deceivers and yet claiming to be apostles. So, if he comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Pretty simple. We all know who Jesus is, right? But if I asked a handful of questions here, I'd probably produce an incredible amount of turmoil here um, amongst us. At least discussion. <laughs> Maybe division. If we really wanted to isolate your Jesus compared to the Jesus of Scripture, and so when I say that Jesus is fully God, that He is pre-incarnate, that is that, he, that when He was born in Bethlehem was not His beginning, but He was an eternal God, that He was always there, that there was no beginning to Him, even though He was begotten, um, we're going to talk about that in a second. But we have him fully God. And one of the tactics of Satan 
and his ministers is to begin to undermine the deity of Christ. It's not maybe the first, it's not maybe the most effective, but it's certainly one of them. It's a priority for Satan that we undermine the deity of Christ. And this fundamentally is what many, many faiths have done, and they have watered down, weakened, or fully destroyed the deity of Christ. Just walked away from it. It's been going on in Western Christianity for at least 120 years. It is what gave birth to the uh, Independent Baptist movement out of the Northern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a fundamentally about the deity of Christ and about the inerrancy of Scripture. Is this person, Jesus, God Almighty? And how much God is He? And so the, the question came forward, and, and there have been those who have been advocating it, that if he isn't God, then he is a great liar or, a, or a, an insane person, that uh, if he is because he claimed to be. But we have had this rubbing off on us of these who would question his deity to the point that we have a necessarily weaker Jesus than Paul had. We can say that we are adamant about his deity, but the fact is, is the effect of thousands of years of attack on the deity, in particular the last 120 years, assault on him within evangelical churches has left us a little battered and bruised when it comes to his deity. We're just not always sure he's God. There are, the other side of it is that Jesus is fully man. Not was, is fully man. Jesus took on complete 100% manhood. He is still today 100% God, 100% man. We don't think of him in those terms. We think somehow that once he got to heaven, he reverted back to just deity and that that's where he is forever. Not true. If that's the case, we're in trouble. That's modalism, by the way. A heresy. Jesus became fully man. Interesting that the group that wants to protect his deity is usually willing to sacrifice his humanity and others trying to protect his humanity sacrifice his deity. There's an old question out there that reveals your position very quickly of how much you believe Jesus is fully man. That question is simply, do you think well, it doesn't matter what you think. Could Jesus have sinned when he was tempted? I didn't say did he, because we know that he did not sin, making him the perfect sacrifice. The question is a hypothetical one. Could he have sinned? 
And how you answer that question tells me whether you believe he was fully man or not. And in our evangelical circles, if I asked that question in the majority of churches, the majority answer would be, he could not have sinned. In fact, I have had pastors and laymen accuse me of being a heretic for saying otherwise. The majority position in our evangelical circles of the GRBC, I would contend, would be that Jesus could not sin. In that situation, I would contend, we've just destroyed Jesus from being 100% man. Why have we done that? Because we are so concerned about protecting his deity that we have sacrificed his humanity. Brethren, that's a false Jesus. If he's not fully man, then the scriptures aren't true that he was tempted at all points just like us, yet without sin. It's dishonest to say Jesus was tempted like us, but not really because he couldn't ever have sinned. Because he's holy God, so it's impossible for him to sin. And therefore, um, he, I got to tell you, if it's impossible or something happened, then there isn't a real temptation, and then the scriptures lied. We must defend, we must believe in a 100% God, 100% man, Jesus, as our Savior and Lord. I find no, this is another group within evangelicalism that I'm going to isolate. There are those that say, well, you accept Jesus as your Savior, later on maybe you'll accept Him as your Lord, and they don't believe in Lordship salvation. And I want to share with you that if Jesus isn't a King of Kings and Lord of Lords, neither can He be your Savior. There is no such distinguishment in Scripture between accepting Him as your Savior and your Lord. It is dishonest and is not the Gospel that my Scripture presents. You must believe Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't say believe in Jesus as your Christ, does it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a long statement, that's a pretty short verse. I always love when I got to that memory verse. When I was a kid and, and, oh good. And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Back then there was no New King James. That's how old I am. Simple, right? Easy. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ until we break it down and realize I have to believe this Jesus, fully man, is Lord, Master of me and Christ. Messiah, Savior, Deliverer. And believing in one and not the other two is not the gospel. So we are called to a simple, that is singular, pure gospel message. Paul was dealing with really two different groups throughout his ministry. One were called the Judaizers. We have 
numerous references to them, particularly in the book of Galatians. And it's easy for us to disassociate ourselves from that group and say, well, that was back then, those days. We don't really have Jews that have that much influence in the church anymore. Um, although it would be surprising if you knew how much there really was still, uh, especially in this modern area with, with Israel coming be a nation again. So here's the situation. The Judaizers were following Paul around, and after he'd get done ministry and he'd, he'd establish a church and go, the Judaizers would come in and uh, claim to be Christians and come into teaching roles and say, well, not only do you have to uh, accept Jesus as your Savior and, and follow, you know, this gospel that Paul gave you, but you also need to adopt the keeping of the law. Whether it be the food law, ceremonial laws, all, all of that. You need to keep the law. In addition to it, and of course, Paul is very clear in Galatians and I appointed and he doesn't take any... <laughs> he doesn't seem to have any problem pointing a finger and say those dirty, rotten scoundrels. They're bringing to you error that we add anything to the sacrifice of Christ. We've done damage to the gospel and is no longer the truth. I don't think you'll find anywhere in Scripture where the Judaizers were just, you know, they're just good guys who, who just can't disconnect from their Judaism and uh, we can just glean from them uh, the truth around the edges of their core statement that says, Jesus isn't enough. And brethren, if you think that is gone, you are wrong. There are still many in our day who are declaring Jesus alone not enough. His sacrifice alone wasn't all it took. It wasn't sufficient. You need to tack on this, 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 this. And we have it all around us. We have those that want to say, well, you know, you, you can claim to be a Christian. I guess you'll get to heaven. But if you haven't spoken in tongues, then you haven't really gotten it. Error. Ding, 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 ding. Error. And when we go into many uh, churches that are described as a legalistic bent, um, and a lot of you think I am, but I, you don't know half of it, um, they'll come in and say, well, if you don't have this, 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 this in line with what I say you should be doing, then we're going to bring into question your entire salvation. They have just tacked on and they are making a declaration that Jesus is not enough. And again, we're not talking about the Christian walk. We're talking about your salvation. And you've heard me regularly distinguish between your walk and your salvation. That you have your salvation in Christ, and now the determination is, are you going to walk worthy of the gospel? And yes, we are called to walk worthy of the gospel, but as soon as I start attaching that to the work of Christ and saying, well, if... if, if if you don't have this, then this is... If you're not baptized, you're not saved. If you don't have this, you're not saved. And as soon as we start saying that, we run an error. Now, I will come and confront you and I'll say, you know, I don't see any evidence in your life that there's any difference that Christ has made. And based upon James and, and uh, other books of the Bible, I have to come... First John, I have to come and ask you, 
Is Christ real in your life? Because there should be a change. He should make a marked difference in your life. But again, the tension there is that that really doesn't determine whether you have a relationship with God or not. It determines whether I can treat you like you have a relationship with God or not. And there's a difference. And so the Bible, First and Second Corinthians, deals with this. Well, we've got a brother in sin. What are we going to do about it? Well, we can't minister to them as if they have a relationship with God. Because they're not acting like it. So I must, in my relationship with them, treat them as though they are not in a right relationship with God with the hopes that they will come to repentance and restore that relationship that in my innermost being, I pray, is really there. Tension. Huh. But I am not saying that they have to have the life to be saved. I'm just saying that if you are saved, Where's the life? It should be there. Not to make you saved, but to show you are. We can sit there and say we're alive, but if there's no pulse, it's really hard for me to accept that. Do you agree? Show a pulse, people. Walk. Go walk. But I will never interject your righteousness into the work of God to save you. Or any secondary work of filling of the Spirit that is independent of your introduction to Christ. This is a different gospel. This is a message from Satan. To infiltrate what we think is, is, is truth. And I want to share the other group, by the way, that's the Judaizers, and we have them around here today. They want to add to Jesus. Jesus isn't quite enough. We're going to add this to it and add this to this. And uh, again, we have some poster children of that in the cults, but it's there in evangelical circles as well. And the other group that Paul was dealing with were called the Gnostics. It starts with a G. It's the Gnostics. Um, the Gnostics are an interesting group of people and uh, this is going to get me a whole lot of trouble. But uh, they uh, had some uh, beliefs that were kind of similar to Eastern mysticism and, and Zoroastrianism and things like that. But they came, and, and it was largely it was infiltrating through the Greek side, mostly. The Judaizers were more from the Jewish perspective on everything of Christianity. As it went to the Greek world, Roman world, we, we see more dealing with some of the Gnostics. We especially see it in the first century church once uh, the the break had happened, uh, fall of Jerusalem and, and the uh, dispersion of Israel. And there was more of a break from uh, of identifying Christianity on its own instead of as a sect of Judaism. Um, the Gnosticism was really more the issue their first century um, men had to deal with. Um, and the Gnostics came in and basically they said, well, all flesh is evil. All creation's evil. Through and through, we're evil. Incapable of anything good. Um, everything of this world's evil. Bad. Everything of man is evil. 
incapable of anything good. But the divine, whoever he is, and you can see how they can start putting on some clothes of Christianity because they did believe in divinity. The divine put within some of us, not all of us, just a few of us, Um, something special, extra. That a few of you were chosen by the divine to be a carrier of something extra. And the word they used to describe that extra was pneuma, which is spirit. The special divine spirit. And for those few of us who carry this divine spirit... We have an inside track. We can get out of the rat race of evil. The rest of you, doomed. Doomed, doomed. You're evil. Incapable of anything. Can't understand anything. You're doomed. There's nothing spiritual about you. You're dead. Dead, dead, dead. Dead is dead. But there's a few of us who have this pneuma, this divine spirit. And then they came up with this, this they, they introduced the idea, and of course it's really easy to simply call him Jesus, that, that the divine sent down this messenger to help us and to instruct us and to guide us to discovery of this pneuma that we carry. Well, some of us carry. Rest of you, dead. Dead, dead, dead. No hope. And so this guy came down here and, he, and he's helping us discover this spiritual thing that we carry, some of us carry, uh, the chosen ones that we carry. And by, in, by following his directions to discover this truth about ourselves, we can come to an understanding of our spirituality and that we can now ascend out of the evil of this world and the created order and we can become spirit beings. That was Gnosticism. Every Gnostic believed in total depravity, in limited atonement in, or I'm sorry, limited atonement, every, every uh, in election, every, every one of them believed in that stuff. Every single one of them believed in election. And only some could get in. Everyone believed that, you know, if God didn't do this work in me first, I couldn't accept Jesus. You see, we still really, I believe, have Gnostics here. We just call them something else. But this doctrine that undermines the gospel that the early church was dealing with and the first century fathers were just assaulting mercilessly and just decrying it as of Satan himself that you would go in and, and declare these kinds of things we find have penetrated evangelical thought to such a degree that any statement to the contrary is now considered error. And to stand up and declare the Scriptures say that all, God is not willing that any should 
perish, but that all should come to repentance has not become popular anymore. The Gnostics were there. They spiritualized it all. And came down to mental assent to truth about themselves, about something that the divine had given them and not to others. You see, the assault on our faith on who is Jesus, what is the gospel, and what spirit goes on and on and on. And we've come to a position, in and again, because we're creatures of our culture to a degree, unfortunately, instead of creatures of God's word, that we think we can filter this stuff out. And the church has been unsuccessful in doing that at least for the last 120 years, maybe for a lot longer than that. We have allowed it to gradually build in concentration to the point that now I am convinced that most of what is being preached today um, is more poison than purity. We have put a grain of rat poison at a time, dissolved it in the water, didn't kill us, so we'll add another grain. And another one. And another. What we are called to here in this passage is don't put up with any of it in there. And to filter out what we are hearing to this degree may be too much to ask anymore. But ask it we must. Because it's our only hope. Does God care? Does God really care how pure our doctrine is? Can't we all just get along? Does, does it matter? I hope you've been doing your Bible reading. You're getting done with Ezekiel this month. Um, I think if you read through the Old Testament prophets, and if you read through the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, at some point along the way, it should have dawned on you that it matters to God. That he requires pure worship. What got Israel into trouble over and over again was not that they abandoned God. It wasn't that they poured the water out and just wanted rat poisoned. They wanted both. Do you remember the words of Aaron to explain the golden calf? Do you remember his words? To the people, he forms a golden calf just like what they have been accustomed to in the idolatry of Egypt, which is heinous to God. God hates it. And this is what Aaron says. This is the God that delivered you from the Egyptians. This is Jehovah. You see, in Aaron's warped thinking, he was like, okay, I'm going to try to bring these two together. The people want an idol but I know that there's one true and living God, Jehovah, who did all this powerful work in our midst, and if I can bring them together and compromise a little bit, we can hold this thing together. And if I don't, it's going to all blast away. 
And there are so many errands today in our churches that we've lost track of the fact that we're following a golden calf. And God comes down and says, destroy them. I'm going to kill them all. Does it matter to God that you put his name to a philosophy of thinking that the world possesses? The prophets come in and Israel's like, well, we come every Saturday with our sacrifice. We come and do our thing. We believe in Jehovah. Um, we also have the high places over there. We enjoy going to those. It's kind of interesting, different, and it, and it helps us get along with our neighbors better. What's wrong with that? God had a problem with that. Bible says our God is a jealous God. He does not, will not, allow men to worship him and others. He will not allow the errands to get away with calling what is not him, him. And this, Paul says, their judgment is coming. These false teachers, these people who are adding poison to the pot, their judgment is coming, be sure, because it matters to God. And if it matters to God, it sure should matter to you and I. And the prophets walked around, they were beaten up, they were spit at, they were ignored, they were slaughtered, they were imprisoned, they were slapped. Why? Because they said, it's not enough for you to just come here and serve the living God one day a week. God doesn't work that way. There is a oneness, a singularity to him, that he wants a singular heart. A heart that says, I will serve the one true and living God, and him only will I serve. This is true Christianity. That there is one true living God, man, Jesus Christ, and Him only I will serve. Him only I will trust in. Him only will I preach and teach. Him only will I believe. Him only will I decide upon. Him and Him only is my Lord, my Master, and my Savior. It matters to God. situation in Israel didn't happen overnight. They just got gradually more and more like the world. They wanted to be like the nations. They absorbed their other God. And the prophets keep asking, what other nation would ever do this? And the question has to be asked now. What other people would ever do this? Do you see any of the Muslims doing this? Do you see others? Do you see others doing this? And yet the followers of the one true and living God with all power seem oblivious to the fact that they are offending the one who has delivered them by perverting everything he has taught them. Paul isn't worried about the Corinthians being converted to a cult. His concern is that they're just putting up with the error in their midst. It's time we stop thinking that we have sufficient filters 
to put up with error so we can glean truth out of this or that. We live in an age of media proliferation that you have so many screaming for your attention and doing so in such (laughs) entertaining ways that we almost can't take our eyes off of them. We have tolerated poison in our pot to the point that we almost don't recognize it. In my home, we used to drink a lot of just tap water. Family didn't think anything of it. My children didn't think anything of it. We never bought out of plastic container. We never bought distilled or anything like that. And then we got a filter. A really nice filter. They don't even want to know how much that cost me. And they started drinking this filter water. It filters out everything. It filters out food coloring out of water. And they started drinking that. They noticed something. That when they went back and drank tap water, it tasted funny. Isn't that funny? Would have never known it if they'd never gotten the pure stuff. Not the bottle of water that tastes like plastic. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the pure water. And once we get the pure water and we get acclimated to it, going back is like, ooh, this tastes bad. This tastes funny. Brethren, we need to get into the pure gospel. Pure Jesus, pure spirit. To acclimate ourselves so much to it that we are readily able to distinguish. That sounds funny. I don't like that. It takes an enormous amount of work to do that. To put on that kind of filter in your spiritual life. But that's what we're committed to in this church is that it's got to be God's Word. As purely as we can teach it and proclaim it, it's got to be God's truth, because only that is the one and only, the simple truth of God that can save. Every other perversion of that truth condemns. Poisons, kills. Don't put up with it. You might be secure in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But you put up with this in your midst. You put up with that kind of influence anywhere within the context of this ministry. You are setting up others around you to gain a flavor, gain a taste for poison. Don't put up with it. In your life, in those you're exposing yourself to, in your Study habits. Don't put up with it. Put up with the truth. It's painful sometimes. Well, most of the time. But it's for your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your truth this morning. We've taken some time today to really investigate some specific areas. Lord, give us the discernment now to grow to know one and only and to fully rely upon him and him alone and Lord we pray that you might 
ferret out of our lives the idols that are there from the world. They keep us from humbly walking before you to your favor. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.